Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. In every era of history, spies have been issued special equipment to do their jobs. Some of it is high tech, some of it is down and dirty, but that purpose-built gear is a force multiplier. So, how do you like to get your hands on some? Our friends at Covert Products Group make a wide range of tools out of unconventional materials like titanium, G10, carbon fiber, and even 3D printed stock. These tools are designed for utility, concealment, and escape. What really sets their tools apart is that you can travel just about anywhere with them, legally. They call their travel-friendly line the Bat Collection, short for Bring Anywhere Tools. They're up to three or four designs at this point, and I heard that there are more in the works. Many of their products are OSS and SOE-inspired, but made with the modern world in mind. They also release small runs of self-defense-oriented products from time to time. Good stuff. You can find them online at covertproductsgroup.com. I'd recommend signing up for their email list while you're there, and I know they won't spam you. Once again, that's covertproductsgroup.com. And use the promo code SPYCRAFT101 at checkout for free shipping in the U.S. This is episode number 11 of the SPYCRAFT101 podcast. With me is David E. Hoffman, a journalist and editor with the Washington Post and the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Dead Hand, the untold story of the Cold War arms race and its dangerous legacy. Today, however, we're going to be discussing the incredible story of Adolf Tolkachev, a Soviet engineer who offered his services to the Central Intelligence Agency in the late 1970s. David wrote the book The Billion Dollar Spy, which is the definitive work on Tolkachev's life as one of the most important spies of the entire Cold War. David, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thanks for having me. So I know that you previously worked in Moscow as bureau chief for, was it the Washington Post in the 1990s? Is that how you first learned about Tolkachev? I mean, what was it that led you to write this book about him in the first place? I was the Moscow bureau chief of the Post from 95 until 2001. But I learned about him after I left that assignment and came back to be the foreign editor of the Washington Post. I had completed a book about nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, and the book was published in 2009, and I was looking around for another idea for a book. And one of the things I didn't realize is that when President Clinton was in office, the CIA had declassified a huge volume of materials from the Cold War. And, you know, you can imagine how it felt to Clinton and the people in the CIA when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Cold War was ending. The CIA had devoted 40% of its resources to collecting intelligence, analyzing it about the Soviet Union. So when the whole thing kind of ended, there was a great deal of feeling that that chapter was over and there was going to be a lot of new challenges. So they declassified tens of thousands of pages of intelligence from the Cold War, figuring it was sort of a 
it was definitely worthwhile for historians, but also the, that chapter was over. And they had some internal discussions about some of these. Believe me, it wasn't easy. But so much material came out that a lot of it was just hard for people to digest right away. And one of the things that came out in that big declassification was an article that had been published in the CIA's own journal called Studies in Intelligence. This is a really interesting journal if you're at all fascinated by these subjects. But There's a declassified version of it that's made public, and there's a classified version. And oftentimes, the articles in here are very valuable for CIA officers, especially in training, to study some of the history of uh, various operations and trends in analysis, what worked and didn't. So in the big declassification of the Clinton period after the Soviet collapse, an article about the Tolkachev operation was declassified in those tens of thousands of pages. And frankly, no one really noticed. So it was called to my attention. I had stumbled across it from my previous book when I was working on some parts of a chapter about espionage in, in the mid-1980s. I had tucked it away, but... When I became foreign editor of the Post and the other book came out and I was looking around for something to do, I tried to find the CIA officer who had written this article about Tolkachev. It was interesting because the article focused almost exclusively on tradecraft, how the operation was conducted, you know, various lessons learned and so on, but it didn't really tell us much about Adolf Tolkachev, the agent. So using some contacts and intermediaries, I found the officer, now retired, who had written this article that was published in the CIA journal. And I called him up. His name was Barry Royden. And I introduced myself and tried to say, you know, I'm a journalist. I've written a few books. And gee, I'd really be interested in writing a book about this operation. And Barry said, I've been waiting years for somebody to make this call. Hmm. He was very eager to help out because he had written this review of the operation. He knew that it was a really good one. He didn't actually work on it at the time, but Barry was a senior officer with great experience. He had six postings abroad. He'd been station chief in various places. So I felt I was in the hands of an experienced professional. And with his help, I went to the CIA and negotiated over a long period in effort to get some of the records of this operation declassified to write a book about it. So that's how it began. I had this question in my head. How did it work? How does espionage really work? And who was this guy, Tolkachev? What was going through his mind when this happened? And of course, those Questions were only partially answered in that article. There was a lot more to do. Sure, sure. I can imagine. It's it's really hard for me to imagine, just from my perspective, what it is that would lead a person to not just betray their country, but to proactively do to, so, to seek out the people that you could provide this information to. But he certainly seemed to have some very good reasons for why he would want to take all these risks and put himself in such danger and provide this valuable information to the U.S., so can you tell us a little bit about what it was that in his life that kind of led him to eventually try to contact the CIA? This story will just blow your mind because 
Kolkachev was pushed, in my view, a little bit by kind of a hidden hand of history. And let me explain. When Adolf Hitler attacked the Soviet Union in 1941, tens of thousands of people had to scramble for protection in Moscow. Most of them ran to the subway, which was the one sort of underground place that was safe. And Tolkachev was just 14 years old when that bombing began. And, you know, Moscow at the time was defended by 600 large searchlights and 800 anti-aircraft guns. But the German bombers got through. And the city, by the way, was largely built out of wood and a lot of the buildings burned. And the Soviet leadership realized what they really needed was radar. So they would have early warning of approaching bombers. And radar was a very new technology in the 1930s. The Soviet Union was far behind the West, and they had only very primitive radar. And because they desperately needed better radar, they put a lot of resources into it. They could do that. They were a police state. They could decide to do something and direct. And they decided, let's build up radar. So the best and brightest kids in a lot of schools were directed to study electronics. And this is what happened to Tolkachev. He was sucked up into the system and his schooling in high school was all about electronics. And then he was sent to a university to study electronics and especially radar. And when he got out of there, he was sent to a top secret military institute to work on radar and spent his whole career there. So at the Institute, he met a young woman. Her name was Natasha Kuzmina, and she worked in the antenna department at this Institute, and she'd had a very, very rough life. Both of her parents had been repressed during the Great Terror in the 1930s. One night, her mother was just taken away, accused of subversion and executed. Her father had been sent off to the gulag. And at the time, Natasha was only two years old. She was orphaned, sent off to a state orphanage where she basically grew up. And in the 1950s, in 1957, uh, she met and then married Adolf Tolkachev. She was very bitter about what had happened to her parents. Her father got out of the gulag after World War II, told her what had happened, and he died about a year later of cancer. So it was a very, very bitter history. But also in the late 1950s, life seemed to be improving a little bit in the Soviet Union, and there was a certain optimism. These were the years after the war, after Stalin's death. It was a time of promise known as the Thaw. Young people hoped for an end to the sacrifices of the past, and there was a hint of more openness. And in 1965, Natasha and Adolf had their only child, a son, Oleg. And I think, at least from Tolkachev's point of view, there was a hope that the promise of the thaw would be realized. And that hope was dashed. Because by the 1970s, the Soviet Union was entering a period of stagnation economically. The Brief period of openness that the thaw represented was slammed shut when the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia, when the Warsaw Pact tanks, when they rolled into Prague, when the Prague Spring was destroyed in August of 1968. 
So in the 1970s, Tokachev began to feel that there's something eating away at him. He was angry. He was angry about the past because of what had happened to Natasha's parents. And he was angry about the present because everything seemed to be turning to a mess. None of the hopes were really being fulfilled. And, you know, lots and lots of people, I would say millions of people, were also quite irritated at what had happened, at the promises of the past. And, in fact, the, the great promise of all the slogans of Soviet communism, none of, them, none of it had ever really materialized. But the thing is that while lots of people felt that, Adolf Tolkachev decided to act on it, to do something. He was disgusted with Soviet slogans and stagnation. So what to do? I think he gave it a lot of thought. His apartment was on the ninth floor of a very prestigious high-rise in Moscow, one of the high-rises Stalin had built. And he oftentimes turned his shortwave radio to listen to various broadcasts from the West. Sometimes they were blocked, but not always. And if you were on the ninth floor and had the right angle, you might be able to catch it, including the voice of America. And one day on the radio, Tolkachev heard that a Soviet fighter pilot was participating in an exercise in the Far East. The pilot was flying the exercises exactly as they were supposed to be done, and suddenly he jammed the stick forward on his plane, made a dive almost to ground level, and hit the gas and flew that fighter jet right out of the Soviet Union over the water and landed it in Japan on a civilian airstrip. He skidded off the end of the airstrip into some grass, popped the cockpit open, by the way, he was completely out of gas, and said he wanted, he handed somebody a note that said, I want to defect. And of course, because this plane that he had flown with was brand new, it was an intelligence goldmine for the West. The pilot's name was Viktor Belenko. And Adolf Tokachev heard this story, just amazing story on the Voice of America that this about this defection. And he got an idea in his mind that Belenko had delivered an intelligence windfall to the United States. And Adolf Tokachev heard that the United States would pay Belenko a million dollars. Tokachev got in his mind that maybe he could do something also to strike back at the Soviet system that had seemed to have gone so far off the rails. But instead of escaping, Tolkachev thought, maybe I can do something like defecting but in place, not actually leaving. And that's what got him thinking about providing really highly sensitive information to the United States. Because he worked on military radars for the same airplane that Belenko had flown and many others. In his desk drawer, he had lots and lots of top-secret documents about the radars that were the eyes and ears of the Soviet military. Hmm. So he never really considered defecting and leaving? He just wanted to remain in place? Was it because of like a love of country or family, or, or what do you think that was? 
Many years later, in the course of the espionage operation that unfolded, Tolkachev was tempted to think about leaving. And uh, once he rejected it, another time he wanted to do it. I mean, he, he toyed with the idea. But in this early stage, he very much wanted to do some damage to the Soviet system that he was increasingly bitter and angry about. But he didn't want to just grab something, documents in his hands and walk out of the Soviet Union. He actually had in mind a plan that he thought would last for years and a series of phases in which he would empty the vaults of the secret military system of the Soviet Union. He actually had in mind very ambitious plans to give them everything he could, and it would take years. And he could only do that if he was still inside. Wow. That's incredible. So he made this decision. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to fight the Soviet Union. So what were the first concrete steps that he took towards doing that? How did he actually make contact with America? Well, first of all, you should know, Tolkachev had very little English, very rudimentary English, but he memorized three sentences in English, and then he wrote a note to the Americans. And he decided because he lived in this tall apartment tower. It, very interesting history. I've actually written some about these towers. They were originally built by Stalin to mimic the Chrysler Tower in New York, a sign of modernity, you know, central elevator shaft, thrusting tower, beautiful modern buildings. But Stalin later, uh, maybe seeking some other kind of glory, added all kinds of uh, various gargoyles and neo-Gothic curly cues and touches so that they looked much more sort of ancient buildings dressed up at the Chrysler Tower with a lot of uh, wedding cake doodads on it. It was a beautiful piece of work. But Tolkachev living hmm. in this building, it was a building devoted to the elite of the aviation industry. And of course, he was part of that elite working as a top engineer in a secret military facility. And every morning, three times a week, usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, he'd bust out of the front doors there at 5 or 5.30 in the morning and go for a jog. And that jogging route, about a mile, took him around the United States Embassy compound because his building essentially overlooked the U.S. Embassy compound. It was right next door in downtown in Moscow. And as, you know, the, mil the militia guards at the U.S. Embassy – we just see, oh, here comes that old guy again, chugging along, you know, on his morning jog. They didn't pay Tolkachev any attention. But Tolkachev's eyes were open and alert because he knew where those guard shacks were, and he knew where the American diplomats who worked in the embassy parked their cars. And he spent hours patiently looking at the cars and looking at their distinctive license plate numbers. They all the plates began with a D04. So he had that in mind. He memorized these three sentences in English and he wrote a letter to the Americans offering to cooperate with them guardedly, didn't assign his name, wrapped it up in brown paper, wrapped it up in some more. So it was like a little packet. And then one night, January, it was very cold, it was already dark. He went to a nearby gas station, also very close to his building and the American embassy, and he waited there in the darkness watching the cars. This was a special gas station only for diplomats, all diplomats, who had special coupons. 
for gasoline. So it wasn't like anybody just driving up there. And there was probably diplomats from various countries. He's looking for the American license plate. So it was January 12th, 1977. And Tolkachev's waiting there when he sees a car pull up with the D04. He went right up to the driver of the car who had just finished fueling. It was just about to climb back in the car. And Tolkachev recalled the first sentence that he had memorized. Are you an American? And then he remembered the second sentence. I would like to talk with you. Well, Tolkachev didn't realize. But he had just approached Bob Fulton who was the CIA's Moscow station chief, refueling his car. <laughs> wow. So the, the first person he approaches is CIA out of everyone in the embassy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that's- Bob told me before he passed away, may he rest in peace, that he hadn't even noticed the man standing there until they actually spoke. Well, Bob replied, it would be difficult to talk right then and there. Fulton was a very experienced intelligence officer and, had served in Korea, knew a lot about you know, hardship postings. Oh, Tolkachev said, summoning up his third memorized sentence. It will be difficult. So switching to Russian, Tolkachev says, Izvinitya, which means excuse me, and he leaned into the car, leaving his package, his little note, on the seat, and then he disappeared into the dark. So Fulton immediately took the note and went back to the CIA station, and he sent a cable back to headquarters describing the whole of what had happened. And I've reproduced that cable in the front piece of the book. Okay, so the Bob Fulton just he's been approached by a complete stranger at night at the gas station, and he's got this mysterious packet, and he he doesn't know what to make of it. So, if I recall correctly, they they thought that this was a trap. To begin with, right? They thought that Tolkachev might be bait. This was always the worry of Moscow station chiefs and of headquarters. There were always traps, and there were always attempts by the KGB to find out who was spying for the United States in Moscow and, you know, wrap them in a little web, catch them in the act, and kick them out. It was, the KGB had hundreds of people assigned to counterintelligence on the streets. They had roving counterintelligence operations, you know, just looking for anything unusual. So for to operate in Moscow was extremely difficult for the CIA. And for many years, they essentially had almost nothing on the ground in Moscow because the CIA, pres- the KGB presence was so strong. And Part of the concern was if you did have a CIA officer out meeting with somebody, was it a trap? You don't want to lose all your officers to traps. So I think the first reaction, which was primarily headquarters, was uh, to be reluctant and to think that it was a trap. And it's interesting because Fulton said, what should I do? And Tolkachev's message said, if you want to continue this discussion, meet me at the following time. Park your car in a certain way, bag it in, keep the headlights on, you know, and so on. And Bob Fulton had an instinct. He told me he just had an instinct from this meeting that something about this guy was for real. It just didn't seem like your usual KGB trap. And I think this was entirely instinctual. But Fulton then looked at the message and he went out and followed the instructions and he 
backed his car in, like it said, and turned the headlights on, and he walked around, and nothing happened. He didn't see the man. He didn't see anything. So he came back to the station, and there's a message there waiting for him from headquarters. And headquarters says, don't do it. <laughs> don't go out there. Don't listen to Don't respond. It could be a trap. But, of course, he had already done it. <laughs> so this is a part of the calculus between a station chief, officers on the street, and headquarters, always weighing the risks, trying to sift through their knowledge, experience, and the evidence to decide when something is working and when something's safe and when something is dangerous. And in this case, Tolkachev was persistent. He continued to try to contact Fulton, kept an eye out for Fulton's car. He was really persistent for, for some time. In fact, he tried to contact the Americans four times over the next few months. And the last time when the CIA officer wouldn't respond, he had a package and he started banging on the hood of the car out of, out of frustration. So this persistence happened at a time when CIA headquarters was going through a lot of changes and you remember oh, Admiral Stansfield Turner became CIA director under President Jimmy Carter. And for a while, the CIA station went into a thing called stand down because there had been a fire. There was a suspicious fire. Turner was uh, convinced that there was something wrong in Moscow station and ordered this stand down. And by then, Fulton had left and a new station chief had come. His name was Gus Hathaway. And uh, Gus was a real classic operator, a man of great enthusiasm f for the mission of espionage, a guy who, you know, saw his life's work as being out there working and collecting. And he did not respond well to this idea of a stand down. And me while the stand down was in effect, Gus had his officers working hard to you know, scope out possible meeting sites to practice, to think about all the preparations that they needed to make in order to operate in Moscow because Gus hoped and I think he felt very confident that eventually it would come back. And I will remind you that at this time in Moscow, maps were difficult. The, the, the CIA had its own map of Moscow, which was much better than any maps that were published by the Soviets at that time because they falsified the maps in order to confuse people. You know, they, they, this was all part of the wilderness of mirrors that was difficult to operate there and they made it difficult. So believe me, everybody in that station shared both the frustration and the hard work that Gus had. But finally, message came and Turner agreed they could resume operations and they had received, uh, when Gus was driving the car one day after Fulton had left, Tolkachev had slipped a, another message, another envelope through the window of the car. And this particular message, again, he had never identified himself by name up to this point, but this particular message gave more information about who he was and where he lived and, and it checked out and the CIA could verify and got a much better idea that uh, he was not a dangle, that it was for real. So this all led to some more messages, the CIA's communications back and forth that I tell the story in the book, including a brief initial phone call. And the thing that happened that was most important is that Gus Hathaway knew he needed the best case officers 
on the street. He had been through this. He was really an experienced operator. And he brought a man named John Gilsher to the station as an officer. And John was a son of Russians. He'd grown up in New York. He spoke beautiful Russian language. And he was also a kind of tall, distinguished guy with silvery hair combed back, very reserved fellow. And he had starred in some earlier CIA operations as a language officer. He had worked the Berlin Tunnel tapes. He had been involved in the Penkovsky case. But he had never really been an on-the-street case officer like this. But because of all the skills that he had, Gus Hathaway brought him to Moscow and he said, John, you're going to be running Tolkachaw. So he put Gilsher in charge of this operation. And I, I think this was actually a, one of the keys to the success of this whole movement because it's John Gilsher who would first meet Adolf Tolkachev face to face. And the that day is maybe the next thing you want to know about, but I'll stop right there. For a Absolutely. You know, I'm still... I'm still blown away that Tolkachev would take this unbelievable risk to put him out there himself out there that first night at the gas station. And then he's kind of rebuffed and he's ignored and he works up the courage to do it. You said four more times over the next few months. Yes. So incredible motivation and incredible risk taking there on his part, because any of those could have ended his life essentially and ended, you know, everything for his family as well. And he just, he kept showing up over and over again. I'm, I'm just amazed by that, honestly. Also, you should know that at this time, the CIA didn't know about his motivations. They didn't know any more than I've said to you, but they were going to learn very soon. Sure. So he ends up being able to meet with Gilsher. I think you said there was a phone call that took place. Was that with Gilsher? Yes. And they organized the first meeting to be on New Year's Day, 1979. So almost two years have passed since the gas station. Wow. And in this very first meeting, it was frigid. And Gilsher was smiling, you know, looking out the window because on New Year's Day, on a frigid New Year's Day, he knew the chances for surveillance would be reduced because the KGB officers would all be recovering from celebrating New Year's and none of them would want to be, you know, conducting surveillance in this kind of bone-chilling Moscow mm -hmm. weather. So... They organized this meeting. There were several exchanges back and forth before that. But finally, John Gilsher and Adolf Tolkachev come face to face on a kind of an open square in an area in central Moscow, really. And, you know, this was a, a real moment where the CIA needed to put forward somebody who could earn Tolkachev's trust. And, you know, Tolkachev was taking big risks. If they had sent somebody out there who Tolkachev didn't believe in, it could have been lost right away. But Gilsha was the right guy. You know, he was the kind of person that could put on the old shabby Russian coat and dress the proper way and talk the proper way and come across as somebody that Tolkachev could trust. So at the very first meeting, one of them anyway, the very first time, Gilsha popped a question. He says, why are you doing this? And Tolkachev at that moment was vague. He said, I'm a dissident at heart. Now, Tolkachev was no dissident. He was a senior engineer at a top secret military facility designing radars, the eyes and ears of the Soviet military. 
He was no dissident, but he was a dissident at heart. And soon the CIA and Gilcher learned more. And in letters and meetings, Tolkachev explained what had happened to him. And at one of them, he wrote, gave Gilcher a lengthy letter, sort of, it's probably the most complete statement we have of Tolkachev's motives. And he said that he felt Soviet politics and literature and philosophy had been, and I quote, emeshed for a long time in such an impassable, hypocritical demagoguery and ideological empty talk that he couldn't stand it. He just ignored it all. And, you know, he said he didn't spy because he loved America. He wrote to the CIA, I have never seen your country with my own eyes. And to love it unseen, I do not have enough fantasy or romanticism. No, Tolkachev betrayed his country out of anger. He told the CIA over and over again that he was bound and determined to do as much damage as possible in the shortest possible time to the Soviet Union. He was driven by this terrible system. And like I said, it was sort of a hidden hand at his back. Wow. So what an incredible find for the CIA at that time. This is like manna from heaven is almost how I would describe it. I think that this guy put himself out there and had this information and this multi-year plan, as you talked about, to give them everything that he could. That's amazing. So this is where we now get to the real, how does espionage work, right? We've crossed the river and the agent has, in this case, volunteered. And I should add something very important here. The CIA's paranoia about dangles and traps, which had existed for many years. Believe me, there were dangles and traps. It was, paranoia was maybe justified. But also there had been volunteers who were just ordinary people that wanted to volunteer to spy. And Tolkachev was never a member of the Communist Party. He was never part of the security services, you know, not in the KGB or the GRU. And a lot of other spies were. And Tolkachev was one of those really unusual cases of a guy. He was in a military industrial complex in the big radar factory, but a study had been done in the CIA by Burton Gerber in 1971. Gerber was a very skilled operations officer who had done a study of all the cases of volunteers and people that had come to Moscow Station to see if there were patterns in those who volunteered. And, you know, he, a lot of people felt that in the 60s and early 70s, they turned away everybody because of fear of, of a trap. So w was that really the right approach? And what Burton Gerber found in this study is that oftentimes this KGB would try to trap somebody by using a person to bring you this stuff if it's somebody you knew. In other words, they try and sugarcoat a trap by having somebody you know bring you an envelope of so-called secrets, and then they would grab you, right? But he found that very rarely did the KGB use somebody that you didn't know, and also that they didn't trust their own people very much, so they wouldn't use an officer very often. But the key thing is that Gerber formulated some rules called informally, you know, Moscow rules that governed how the CIA began to think about volunteers. So when Tolkachev came along in 1977, 
that lesson was beginning to be really implemented. And in the case of Tolkachov, the CIA made the right call, that it wasn't a trap. And they made the call because Burton Gerber had worked on that. And of course, as the operation unfolded after Gus Hathaway went back to Washington, Burton Gerber became the Moscow station chief. So you bring into play a fellow who had given a lot of thought to how this would work, and you have on the street John Gilsher, a fellow who's building trust with the officer and later several other case officers, and you have Tolkachev motivated by this anger to do damage to the Soviet Union and to provide information that all comes together. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect people on the CIA side and the perfect source out of the Soviet Union. So when they first met, was it just to establish who was who, or did Tolkachev start passing information immediately to Gilsher? I think the information came pretty relatively quick because the CIA wanted to know what did he have and what could he provide. There was an early discussion, a, a long memo uh, they gave to him, and he wrote a letter back, sort of describing his day, where he worked, what it was like, what security was like. Um, the CIA was giving some thought to the fact that he had access to this information and how to get it out. But I would remind listeners, it's hard to remember now, but we're talking about the analog era, right? There was no iPhone. There was no email. There was not, I'll send you a text. This was an age when the Xerox machine was considered a very modern technology. And f all photography was carried out with silver halide film, you know, with the little sprockets in it. And the CIA, of course, uh, ideally would, you know, ask somebody, can you make a Xerox? But the Xerox machines in the Soviet Union were largely locked up by the KGB. Sure, that makes sense. So they had to figure out some other way for him to transmit a huge amount of information, like a, like a bulky amount of paper, I'm guessing, one way or the other, right? Or a, a large amount of film? So what did they work on? Right. So that leads us to the next and very important phase of this operation, because the CIA realized that photocopying was impossible. They were going to have to rely on film photography to make this work. So the CIA had, uh, in the 1960s, really not come up with a good camera to give to agents. But over time in the late 60s, early 70s, they began to really dig into this problem. And they developed a very tiny miniature spy camera, a wonder of optics, it's so small that it took a jeweler, basically, to put the thing together by hand. And it was eventually called the Tropel. And it was about the size of a lipstick. And if you put your elbows on a table above a piece of paper and held this tiny little thing, even in a fountain pen, you could take a perfect picture of that page on the table in front of you. And the, one of the original models could handle a hundred shots. It advanced the film after you clicked it each time. And so this was a very sophisticated spy camera that had just been invented when the Tolkachev operation began. So CIA was thinking, what should we give them? Well, the very first camera they gave Tolkachev was an experimental camera called the Molly. It was a tiny camera about the size of a matchbox. And they didn't give him the Tropel because they thought, look, he's new. He's new to us. We don't really know what he can do. Um, we have this experimental thing called the Molly. It looked like a tiny Minox, like I said. And let's give him that. And frankly, they gave it to him 
and it, it was a piece of junk. It didn't work very well. A lot of the pictures didn't come out. So then they're on the second round. Okay, they're about to be another Gilsher meeting with Tolkachov. What should they give him? So this time they gave him a Pentax 35 millimeter single lens reflex camera. And one of the reasons for that was that the discovery of a Pentax camera like this, a Taurus camera, of which there were millions in the world at the time, it wouldn't be that suspicious. And if it was, for example, found on a table in uh, Tolkachov's apartment, he was a senior engineer, you know, it, w- it wouldn't look like spy gear. It would look like a tourist camera, maybe from the West, but it wasn't suspicious. And they also gave him in that meeting two tropels, but they told him, don't take these to work because if you get caught with these, you're finished. These are obviously spy cameras. They said, use them, you know, experiment with them at home. Also, in addition to the 35 millimeter camera, they gave Tolkachov film that they had personally, uh, that the CIA had packaged high definition film. It was actually used in our best satellites and they wound it and spooled it into Soviet film canisters. So it would look like your average Soviet Kodak film bought at the local store, but it actually was very high quality film. And so again, if somebody spotted it, they wouldn't realize it. And they gave Tolkachov a clamp. So he could hold the camera steady or clamp it to the back of a chair. And I don't want to spoil anything, but this became the weapon with which Tolkachov most effectively tried to destroy the Soviet Union. This was by far the most important technology in the entire operation, the Pentax camera. Tolkachov took so many pictures with this camera that he eventually wore it out and and, and asked for another. And I will tell you that most case officers serve a year and a half or so. The tour is different, but John Gilser's tour was ending. And I think it was uh, an evening in June 1980, so after a year and a half. And it was the last meeting. And Tolkachov and Gilser met on a, about 10 o'clock at a, in a park in Moscow. And on a June summer night, it was still light. It was beautiful. It's one of those romantic Moscow nights where the air is fragrant and the sun really hasn't gone down. And Tolkachev showed up with his briefcase, which is kind of odd because why would he have his work briefcase at 10 o'clock at night in a park? And Gilsher was uh, with him and Tolkachev turned to Gilsher and said, do you have anything to carry this stuff? And Gilsher had a sport coat on. He always wore a sport coat, but in the pocket he only had a little baggie, like a Ziploc bag. And Tolkachev said, no, that won't do. Tolkachev shook his head no and opened up his briefcase. And inside, Gilsher could see there was a whole mass of rolls of film. So Gilsher instinctively realized, A, that they were vulnerable standing in a park with a top engineer holding a briefcase full of film. And, all the, you know, this was their last meeting. It must have been very emotional. I think John probably wanted to give uh, Tolkachev a hug. And Tolkachev also wanted very desperately to be understood and, and recognized for the risks he had taken, but there was no time. And frankly, neither of these guys was very emotional. They were, you know, they did their jobs well. They were real pros. John Gilsher grabbed that briefcase and took off and made it back to the Moscow station. And when he opened it up, Hmm. 
there were 179 rolls of 35-millimeter film in that briefcase, one of the largest hauls ever. This was hundreds and hundreds of pages of top-secret documents. Wow. Wow. And they just had to part like that? I, I guess they did not see each other again ever after that. They never saw each other again. Wow. They had shared this incredible bond and taken this incredible risk together, and it just had to end so quickly there. That's that's incredible that you know Tolkachev is going through all this and taking all these risks, and he's not able to share his story really with anybody. He's not able to commiserate with anybody. It's all operational. You know, they're not able to talk through what they just went through, the significance of all that. That's that's really incredible. So Tolkachev, of course, would meet other CIA case officers after John, and there were others who I describe in the book. And the operation went over six years. So this operation was extremely productive. The file cabinets in uh, CIA headquarters and in the Pentagon that are full of uh, Tolkachev's files and things he helped the United States to understand. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of file folders about this thing. The CIA and the United States military worked on these files, exploited them, and benefited from them well into the 1990s. The 1990s. Wow. So a decade's worth of analytical work based on this stuff that he was he was passing over every time. That's amazing. I can tell you a little bit more about what we call the positive intelligence. You know, the the positive intelligence that Tokachov provided was an absolute goldmine because he gave the United States a roadmap for compromising and defeating two critical Soviet systems. One of them were the radars on the ground that defended the Soviet Union from attack. And the other were radars on warplanes that gave it the capacity to attack others. And I describe in the book in some detail how this worked. But to me, the most remarkable thing was that the CIA, at least in the 1970s, was was very confused about Soviet air defenses. Remember, this is the this country has 37,000 miles of borders. I mean, it's the longest land borders in the world. The Soviet Union had to defend its bo- its borders, and they did so with an uh, entire sector of the military known as air defenses, which knitted together hundreds of different units and types of equipment. But while we had a better fix on their missiles and on you know things that we th- commonly associate with the Cold War, you know, nuclear weapons and so on. In the 1970s, the CIA had a hard time figuring out about Soviet air defenses, which was essentially a third area of their defenses that we didn't, we just didn't know that much about. We knew more about submarines and more about uh, land-based missiles. So this puzzlement was especially important because technology in the United States was rapidly increasing and we were building the cruise missile. The cruise missile, you know, was kind of a middle step between where we were in the early years of the 60s and the stealth program, right? It was in between. The cruise missile would fly very low. It would hug the ground and therefore fly under radars and not be easily detectable. And that made it a very valuable weapon and very worrisome to the Soviets. And what we didn't know is how low could their radars go how low could the radars detect some moving missile against the background of the earth? And the CIA analyses of the time said, well, maybe they're good at it and maybe they're not. And especially there was a technology called 
look-down, shoot-down radar. In other words, the kind of technology that would allow a Soviet airplane to spot an incoming cruise missile against the background of the Earth. We didn't know how good they were. And Tolkachev's first contribution was to show the United States that actually they were way behind in that technology. And in later years, as they began to catch up, Tolkachev's contribution helped the United States essentially read their mail. We watched them design the radars. We Tolkachev compromised every major radar on Soviet fighter planes and interceptors, some of their ground-based systems. And eventually, the Soviet Union began building the Airborne Warning and Control System, or AWACS, modeled after ours. Very important part of air defense, because if you have an AWACS system, from the air, you can command your fighter planes and your battle from the air over a much wider territory. The old Soviet system across all those thousands of miles was to try and command it from bunkers on the ground. So just as the Soviets built this AWACS system to command all of their uh, air defenses, Tolkachev essentially helped the United States hack it so we could read their mail. And had the Cold War ever turned hot, this would have been precious, precious information. And based on Tolkachev's information, we were able to build a jammer that the Army, that the Air Force and the Navy wanted for their planes, a jammer that would essentially fool Soviet radar about the location of our planes. And I don't think we could have built that except for Tolkachev's intelligence. It doesn't have his name on it. A lot of this stuff is processed through R&D, but... You know, I remind you that the real goal of an espionage here was to find out secrets that would be valuable for the United States in this enormous Cold War competition. And when Tolkachev began to deliver this stuff, some of it went into those national intelligence estimates, the very high-level polished reports that are a mixture of operational and analytical information. And some of it was hived off to the research and development of our own weapon systems. And again, none of this has like a, you know, brought to you by Adolf Tolkachev label on it. But you can tell by the way the F-15E was developed, by the way the Gulf War was fought. In particular, in the book, I describe a dogfight between an American pilot and a Soviet, and an Iraqi flying a Soviet MiG. And, you know, again, this kind of, valuable intelligence has takes its own course in lots of different directions. Yeah, it's it's becoming really clear why he was known as the billion dollar spy in that case and why you titled the book that way. Well, he was really even bigger than that because at one point during this operation, Burton Gerber, as the Moscow station chief, asked headquarters, hey, guys, are we doing all right? I mean, he didn't put it that way, but he wanted to know, like, is the work we're doing are we getting stuff that's useful? And the headquarters then turned to the Air Force, which was the major customer of this information. And in a reply, the Air Force told the CIA that already the information they had received had saved the United States $2 billion in research and development costs by knowing what the Soviets were up to. And that was before they processed those 179 rolls of film in Tolkachev's briefcase. Wow, wow. So multi-billion dollar in the end, then for sure. And this is back in the 1980s as well. Right. Well, it's, it's hard to imagine a more priceless asset than Tolkachev. So that actually makes me wonder, what is it that he 
received from the United States for all this incredible value that he provided to us. Just before I answer that, I think that I should explain to you that Tolkachev used that camera in his house. He didn't take pictures in his secret military installation. He took documents in his coat pocket every day uh, out of the installation, Hmm. walked home to that tall high rise I described, fastened the camera on a chair. His wife, Natasha, was at work at the time. She worked at the same institute. She usually took the bus. He walked home at lunch, supposedly for lunch, photographed the documents, and then walked back and put the documents back in their secret pouch. He did this over and over again. Now, later, the Institute changed its security arrangements so you couldn't just walk out like that. And they said that if you were going to take secret documents from the library, you had to deposit your ID card right there in the slot so they would know that you had those documents. So the CIA came up with this ingenious idea to duplicate Tolkachev's ID card so that if he had a second one, he could come and go and he could also leave one in the slot. I guess they assumed the Soviet guys wouldn't double check, but it was interesting. Remember, this is the analog era. This is when, and it was very difficult for the CIA to perfectly duplicate his building pass. Every time they brought a prototype to Tolkachev, he said, no, it, it's not right. The color's not right. It's not, and on, I think the third or fourth attempt, Tolkachev took a piece, a corner of his pass and ripped it off and said, here, send this back so they can get the color right. <laughs> oh, my God. And eventually they did. And only a very short period after they had successfully duplicated the pass, the security procedures were changed again, and the whole thing was overtaken by events. But I want to make clear that Tolkachev took a lot of risks. He And the risks were not always the high-tech ones that we think about. I mean, essentially, he was taking secret documents out of this institute, walking 20 minutes to home, photographing them, hiding the camera at home, then getting back to the office, and then every couple of months delivering the film to the CIA. He actually didn't use the tropel much for most of the period of this operation. But at the very end... Near the end of the operation, his pen, his Pentax camera broke. I mean, I'm telling you, the guy was just using so much the shutter broke or something, and he asked the CIA for another one. And they were kind of concerned that he was going too fast, and he was just doing too much. He was really obsessed. And they said, no, let's not give him another one. They decided to give him the Tropel, which was becoming better, more well-developed. The technology was improving. And they did it, but they told him – you know, don't take this to work because it's really dangerous if you're caught. Anyway, Tolkachev was so obsessed that he had given them a document and part of the photography had been bad and some of it was blurred and the CIA really needed the second part of it re-photographed. And so one day Tolkachev took the tropels to work. He took the document and he went across the way. He worked in a big compound of about a dozen buildings. He went to another building. He went into the men's room. He closed the door. He latched the stall. He stood in the stall. There was a very tiny window just above the, st- the toilet, which is painted over. So it's only got a very dull amount of opaque light coming through. And he put the documents there and used the tropel to photograph that several hundred pages of the rest of that document right there in the stall of the top secret military toilet. (laughs) 
Wow. Just locking himself in the men's room and, and doing committing espionage. So you asked, what did he get? Well, Tolkachov wanted respect. He wanted the CIA to show him that they valued all these risks he was taking. And he certainly saw money as a sign of their respect and value. And he wanted money. And their initial offers, he sort of sniffed at. And eventually, they brought him huge blocks of rubles. I mean, literally blocks of them lashed together. But the thing about this is that Tolkachov wanted the money to show respect, but he couldn't buy anything. In 1970s, 1980s Moscow, sorry, 1980s Moscow, mostly this operation took place from 79 to 85. There were shortages everywhere. People waited in line for food. I mean, Tolkachov himself and his wife were always out waiting in line. So, you know, if you, no matter how many rubles you had, there was nothing to buy. He never actually used the money to, to buy it very much. He wanted other things too. He very much cherished uh, music tapes that he wanted for his son who was uh, growing up. Western music was a prized possession for his son, and the CIA honored that request. You know, one of the case officers, David Rolfe, who features in the book and played a very important part in earning Tolkachev's trust, David Rolfe was given a list one day. You know, he looked down at the list and it says, you know, Uriah Heep, Rolling Stones, so on. So they put some music on tapes. And Hmm. at other times, he wanted books and literature. And again, not all of these meetings and case officers were as John Gilsher's early meeting out there in the middle of a park. At some period of time, it got to be more difficult. There's one uh, case officer, Bob Morris, who I talk about in the book. And, you know, he, for a while, was working in a, a very secretive measure that C- KGB didn't really know he was working for the CIA, recovering drops and doing things. And, you know, Bob told me about one night when he got um a messenger had some operational thing to do and he came home and, you know, he, he was in his own apartment in Moscow, but he realized that anywhere in that apartment, there could be secret cameras. So there he was, he crawled into the bottom of a closet of his own apartment, closed the door. And that's where he wrote out his message. <laughs> These guys were really, really, they were tough. They're mm. perfectionists. They trained. There was another fellow, Bill Plunkert, who was a case officer who carried out the operation with the Jack in the Box when they had lost touch with Tokachev and had to, you know, get the, the KGB uh, away so they could have a meeting with him? And I tell the story in the book about how Plunker carried this off with great skill and precision. There, there is no room for error in in this kind of an operation with the stakes so high. So they would periodically bring Tokachev things he'd asked for. I mentioned money, music. He wanted drawing equipment for his son who was studying architecture. They would bring him books and news articles and medicine for his wife. So Tokachev got stuff. But if you look back on it, you know, he didn't get a ticket to a, for a trip to Las Vegas or anything. Yeah, it sounds like he improved the quality of his life a little bit, but he wasn't, I mean, he was never in it for the money to begin with. Doesn't seem like at all. So this goes on for several years. He's got several different case officers that rotate through. And I know they're incredibly careful, but what is it that kind of brings this to its conclusion? Like how did all of his work finally end? Polkachev was always worried 
that then Ann could come in. At one point, he asked the CIA for a, a suicide pill. And after much deliberation, they gave it to him. And at one point in during the operation, there was a scare. And Tolkachev thought he had been discovered. And he got called in by the boss. And he actually had that suicide pill there, you know, ready to take it if he needed to. Because he said, you know, if I'm going to die, I do not, do not want to die at the hands of the KGB. But that was a false alarm. It turns out they weren't on to him. But he was so worried that time that they were on to him that after that, he drove to his country house, his dacha, and he took with him the camera, all the stuff, the various things, the, the clamp and some other things that the CIA had given him. And he tried to destroy them in this big iron furnace in the middle of his dacha. Um, not all of it burned. Some of the electronics he actually threw out the window of the car as he was driving home. But he got rid of everything just in case. And it, again, it was a false alarm. The, the operation went on for another year or two. In the end, you might be asking me, how was he discovered? I, You know, the word betrayal is in the title of the book. So I don't want to be coy about it. He was betrayed by another CIA officer. And this man was a failed trainee who the CIA fired for flunking a lie detector test repeatedly. And embittered by this, the man, Edward Lee Howard, decided to extract vengeance. And Edward Lee Howard, as a trainee, had been training to go to Moscow to become a case officer that who would have handled Tolkachev. He was in the pipeline for that job. So he knew some pretty significant things. And his betrayal led the KGB to Tolkachev. And eventually they arrested him on a lonely country road. It was a simple act of vengeance and hate that Edward Lee Howard just felt that he'd been wronged by the by CIA. He'd been fired basically because of sort of incompetence. He flunked the lie detector test on a question of, you know, criminality. Are you hiding something criminal? And I, you know, I I think that he basically flunked the lie detector test because he was a petty thief and he didn't want to admit that he had things. And it's hard to understand what a person like Howard, who was in the pipeline for a prestigious job, who'd been trained for this job by the CIA, who had taken the oaths, who certainly understood what was at stake and how valuable Tolkachev was, why he would turn around. And although he was fired, he was still supposed to honor those oaths he had taken and why he would turn around and, and do this. But he told his wife at one point he was out to caused the CIA pain like they had never felt before. And that's what he did. Yeah. And that was all because he lied to them, essentially. Like he did it to himself, really. If, if I recall correctly, during his training for Moscow, he got caught cheating during some sort of practical exercise. Yeah. He was supposed to carry a 35-pound backpack and he put cardboard in it so it wouldn't wouldn't weigh so uh, okay. much. Yeah. Yeah. So just trying to lighten his own load during a practical exercise. He got caught cheating. He he flunked the lie detector test four times. He was not the brightest bulb in CIA training. Hmm. That's unfortunate. And then he, he does that to himself, but then he finds a way to put the blame on the CIA for getting rid of him after he gets caught in these lies. And he decides to hurt people who have done so much for us just as, as this petty vengeance of his. That's really unfortunate. So it's just, it winds up being Tolkachev that, that suffers for Howard's lies, essentially. 
Well, I should uh, add that Howard eventually fled the United States. This FBI was on his heels, but a little bit too far back. They didn't catch him. And he fled to the Soviet Union and he eventually died there. Yeah, I think he, he lived there for, for many years, I think, didn't he? 20 years or something after he fled, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So Tolkachev, so Howard passes on the information about Tolkachev, which he was already briefed on before he actually got to Moscow Station. And Yeah, I don't know how much he was briefed on, but he certainly was briefed on some of it. There's been a little bit of a debate if he knew Tolkachev's full real name or just knew him by his crypt. But the thing is that he certainly would have been in a position to give the KGB enough information to narrow down the field and find Tolkachev. Okay, okay, right, right. That makes sense. And eventually they, they do find him. So how exactly do they capture Tolkachev in the end? Well, in the end, they waited for him. He was actually coming back from his dacha, and he was with his wife. So they set up a uh, what looked like a routine police stop on the road to Moscow from the dacha. But, of course, this wasn't routine police stop. They were all KGB. And they stopped his car and grabbed him and threw him in a van and arrested him. And he was tried and convicted of treason and executed. <laughs> so... I guess that they interrogated him quite a bit before the execution. Did anything happen to the the case officers or the people at the CIA station at Moscow station that had been working with him at that time? Were any of them PNG'd or anything like that? You know, the last case officer who was meeting with Tolkachev, I think was PNG'd, but hadn't, the meeting wasn't a success. Tolkachev had probably already been caught by that time. It's a little uncertain. But the, the point is that the case officers... And, and most of them in this case didn't obviously did not suffer that Tolkachev paid with his wife life and his wife Natasha was also accused of helping him even though she hadn't and at one point she was told that if she would plead guilty she would get off lightly and when she took that advice and pleaded guilty the judge sentenced her to three years of jail time and the first year was in a very difficult jail in Mordova and later she was moved to Siberia in what was sort of a dreary halfway house kind of a situation. She spent three years in in prison. And when she was released, she came back to Moscow. You know, she didn't have a job. She wound up working in a boiler room uh, of an apartment. Um, her son had obviously grown. He was become an adult. But Oleg, her son, her husband was gone. She, she had been punished. She had worked in the intended department at the institute, she got no job. And, you know, what had happened to her parents, obviously, she couldn't escape her. And eventually, she died of cancer. Hmm. Well, she she had a tough time, for sure. She suffered a lot of tragedies in her life, no doubt about it. You know, one of the sad things here is that she wrote a letter to the American embassy before she died, begging them for help. And I think a clerk or whoever saw it didn't recognize who she was. and And they just never answered it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I guess most people at the embassy would not have had any idea of any of that to begin with, unfortunately. Well, that's terrible. So your book is The Billion Dollar Spy, which is is phenomenal, of course, and which is what led me to contact you. And Tolkachev's story is, is really unbelievable. I understand that there is a film about that in the works right now. So is there anything you can tell us about the status of the film right now? There's a film in development. I'm hopeful about it, but you know how Hollywood works. You never know. I think it could be another year till the film is out, but a lot of work has been done, uh, and I'm I'm very happy 
with the way it's been going, but it's still in development. So it's hard for me to say for sure. I would just say stay tuned. Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely plan to. I'll be in the movie theater day one. No question about it. And, you know, I'd like to just add something, Josh, that people often ask me. So you wrote this story, great story, spying, you know, there's a spy and secret cameras and top secret documents and so on. But are there, is there some lesson out of this? And, you know, one of the lessons, there is an important lesson for us today. And that is, you know, the world is really divided between those who cherish freedom and those who would destroy it. And we certainly see around the world a lot of evidence that there are people out there that do not share our ideas of liberty and how to live it. And there are ethical choices that have to be made between these forces. They are not equivalent. So when people often say to me, is espionage necessary? I mean, is it ethical and moral to ask people to betray their country? And I say to them, Listen to what Adolf Tolkachev said. He knew the answer. The systems were not the same. And that's why espionage is necessary, to defend the things that we hold most dear. I agree. I agree completely. And I'm glad that someone, as he said in that letter that you read from earlier, he said he's he loved our country even though he had never seen it. He just loved the idea of it. And I think that's something that a lot of people all around the world hold on to and that they can identify with as well. And, you know, when I see that, you know, these systems were called the two great superpowers, but they're so vastly different. And it's, it's obvious to me why people always gravitate towards the United States, despite our problems and gravitate away from that system as well, despite all the propaganda that they push on their end. But you know, I think Tolkachev could see through everything and his work was really an incredible contribution towards the in, ending the cold war when it did. Well, David, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. This has been really enlightening for sure. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the film as well. And I understand you are in the finishing stages of another book right now as well. Can you tell us more about that? I'll just tell you this. It's a book about one man who decided to fight a totalitarian system and paid with his life. And it's wow. not. Okay, well, I'm already not for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's a it's a somber, serious story about one man and his fight for democracy, not in the United States, how it unfolded and the price he paid. Next year. Should be out okay. next year. Yeah, that sounds fascinating, and I'll definitely keep an eye out. Next year. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David. We really appreciate it. This has been a great episode, honestly. It's it's great to hear you tell this story, and I know that my listeners, our listeners are going to really enjoy this as well. And uh, hopefully they'll, they'll read more about it in your book and see the film as well. So thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thanks for having me. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101 or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Johnny D and Adam S. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is always lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.